2: Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all new Far Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
3: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 390. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have Amy H. Sturgis with a part three of Looking Back at Genre History. Then we have the main fiction, which is Ticking by Alan M. Steele. Then right at the end, our Jeremy Sal is interviewing Ellen Datlow, the, an interview with the world-leading horror anthologist. There you go, can't get better than that. But before that, don't forget, our show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. Octagon Technology is now able to supply hosted exchange servers for solicitors and legal firms in the UK who need to use the Criminal Justice Secure email. Big thank you to Clive and Diane. So yes, what about last week's show, mind you, eh? Bloody hell, man, George R. Martin, you know what I mean? Way to go. But ever onwards, first up is Amy H. Sturgis. "Aims me girl!
4: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, I'd like to talk about one of my very favorite stories by one of my very favorite authors. I think some of you know that this summer, I am spending a lot of my time teaching a new graduate course on the literary Copernicus himself, H.P. Lovecraft. And I want to talk today about one of my favorite stories by Lovecraft and the interesting tales, true tales from folklore that inform it. One of my very favorite Lovecraft stories, definitely top five, is The Shunned House, which he wrote in October of 1924, and which was published in Weird Tales in October of 1937. It's the story of a house in Providence, Rhode Island, that has a very bad reputation, as it turns out, justifiably, and the nephew and uncle team who decide to put an end to the cause of that bad reputation. Now, there are a lot of things about this story that make me want to flail around in fangirl glee. One thing is that the house is really based on an actual home built around 1763, still standing at 135 Benefit Street. Just a few years ago, it was my privilege to be invited to give a talk at Brown University, and while I was there, I offered a walking tour of Lovecraft's Providence for those students who were interested. And let me tell you, it was amazing to get to stand there, mere feet from the actual shunned house, which today is quite a beautiful home, but... It is full of history. In fact, Lovecraft fanboyed over it because he knew that Edgar Allan Poe had walked by that house. But it's a very compelling and evocative sight. One of the fascinating aspects of the story, The Shunned House, is how the main character and his uncle Ask the question, is there a real phenomenon here? Is there something wrong with this house? Or is this just a lot of old wives' tales, a lot of gossip from the community, So they trace generation after generation in the house, and there they discover premature deaths, the fact that no living babies have been born in the house. And then they ask themselves how scientifically they're going to deal with the threat that the house presents. And they go into the house to solve the problem complete with flamethrowers, like early-day Ghostbusters, and it's quite amazing. You may know that Lovecraft started out saying he wanted to write about supernatural horror. But the longer he wrote, the more he realized that he didn't want to suspend or contradict natural law. In fact, what he wanted to do was build on it. So it wasn't that he wanted to talk about things that were supernatural. He wanted to talk about things that didn't contradict the scientific facts as we knew them, but built upon them, built outward, beyond them, that were supernatural, if you will. In fact, Kenneth Haidt, in his book Tour de Lovecraft, says of the Shunned House, that the introduction of scientific lore, alongside with the very authentic ghost and werewolf lore collected in the early part of the story, serves to emphasize the span of time between the primitive Huguenot vampire in the cellar and the present-day ghost-breaking whipples, that's the nephew and his uncle, and to point up the multidimensional nature of the evil in the house. The big takeaway there is that Lovecraft, in what turns out to be a vampire story, isn't telling a fantasy about vampires. He's telling an early science fiction tale about vampires. And ultimately, he deals with a vampire in a very scientific way. As I've already mentioned, there's a lot to love about this story. And in fact, you can find it for free online on a variety of websites. So just Google The Shund House and you'll find it. Another of the many reasons I love this story is because of its characterization. Lovecraft is occasionally described as an author who doesn't excel at characterization. And I think that's incorrect. He was an author who wasn't entirely interested in characterization because his main thrust was the creation of mood, the evocation of certain emotions that arise from the imagination. But this is one of those stories that proves he was quite good at characterization when he wished to be the bond between the nephew and his distinguished, respectable, venerable old uncle is Very, very carefully and compellingly drawn. And in a way, the uncle can be read as the man who was most important in Lovecraft's life, his maternal grandfather, who was largely in charge of educating Lovecraft. He would make up stories to tell Lovecraft, and he gave young Lovecraft the run of his considerable library, in which Lovecraft essentially taught himself. His grandfather was named Whipple Phillips and the main character, the uncle in this tale is Elihu Whipple. So he's in sense named after Lovecraft's grandfather. And when he ultimately sacrifices himself fighting this evil force, it's a very meaningful and wrenching sacrifice. But I digress. What I really want to talk to you about today is the folklore on which Lovecraft based this story. Here, I want to give credit to Fay R. Hazel, who wrote an essay called Some Strange New England Mortuary Practices, Lovecraft Was Right, which was published in Volume 29 of Lovecraft Studies. Hazel says... Believing that the writer who would inspire cosmic terror must reproduce exactly the right details of real life, H.P. Lovecraft was an assiduous researcher. Whether revising other writers' works or creating his own, his letters testify to a desire to get it right. The accidental discovery in 1990 of an abandoned family burial ground in eastern Connecticut and the resulting archaeological dig have produced new evidence to show just how right he was in depicting New England customs and folklore. That's what I want to tell you about. You see, in 1990, in Griswold, Connecticut, children were playing in a newly opened gravel pit, and they were sliding down, and the next thing they knew, there were human bones sliding along with them. So ultimately, Connecticut state archaeologist Dr. Nicholas Bellantoni made an excavation to find out exactly what was going on in this gravel pit. And here's a creepy but true fact. The first coffin that he unearthed had his initials on it, NB, and, believe it or not, his birth date, too. These were outlined in brass tacks on the coffin. Brass tacks, by the way were used in early coffins, marking them at the time with the necessary information like the initials of the interred, birth and death dates, etc. Just the basic information. And that's where we get the saying, get down to brass tacks, meaning getting on to the important part. Anyway, Dr. Bellantoni found a fieldstone crypt there in Griswold, Connecticut. It was unusual for where it was found. And it was also unusual because it had clearly been broken into and messed about with after the original burials. In fact, one body showed its chest ripped open as if something had been taken out of the chest cavity and the leg bones had been placed by the skull to form a skull and crossbones pattern. Eventually, the excavators connected what they found at that dig to a book of folklore David Phillips' legendary Connecticut, and that reported an outbreak of vampirism in the 19th century, there where Griswold, Connecticut is today. Dr. Bellantoni admitted that the corpse that he found that was mutilated showed clear signs of advanced tuberculosis. What had been done to the body could only be explained as a reaction by the locals trying to, quote, put down a vampire. And here's the connection that was made, vampirism and tuberculosis. To put it another way, in early New England, vampirism wasn't about drinking blood. It was about stealing breath. As Hazel notes, quote, "...the connection with tuberculosis reflects the peculiar circumstances of the native New England vampire belief." Blood sucking is not usually mentioned explicitly in the New England vampire cases. Instead, we may hear about draining the vitality or just fading away and dying. Someone dies of a wasting disease, and that's probably consumption. When other members of the same family sicken and die, suspicion falls on the first victim, whose hungry ghost is assumed to be afflicting the remaining relatives. The family, or townspeople, exhume the body of the suspected revenant, cut out the heart, and burn it in order to lay the hungry ghost and perhaps cure any remaining victims, end quote. Well, that's exactly what Lovecraft writes about in The Shun House. But, of course, he wasn't around in 1990 when this particular dig took place. So what was he basing his story on? He probably based his depiction in the Shun House on articles in the Providence Journal. That journal ran stories about the 1892 exhumation of the Brown family of Exeter And there was also a description in George Stetson's 1896 article, The Animistic Vampire in New England, in the scholarly journal American Anthropologist, about the same 1892 exhumation. What happened in 1892 in Exeter? Well, tuberculosis. And what did the locals do? They dug up the first member of the family to die of that wasting disease, cut out his heart, and burned it. Stetson would write that he could hardly believe, quote, the prevalence of this remarkable superstition in the closing years of what we are pleased to call the enlightened 19th century. That's right. This practice was still taking place in 1892. Just as a fun aside here, this Exeter exhumation made world news. In fact, the only contemporary clipping that was found in Bram Stoker's papers was from the New York world in 1896, and it was the headline, Vampires in New England. Dead bodies dug up and their hearts burned to prevent disease. Strange superstition of long ago. The old belief was that ghostly monsters suck the blood of their living relatives. And of course, a year later, what does Bram Stoker publish? Dracula. Coincidence? Hmm. At any rate, Stetson, the anthropologist whose work Lovecraft knew, either from reading the monograph or from reading popular reports of it, Stetson seems to have been the very first to identify the New England vampire folklore belief with consumption. Stetson wrote, quote, "...it is there believed that consumption is not a physical but a spiritual disease, obsession or visitation." But as long as the body of a dead consumptive relative has blood in the heart, it is proof that an occult influence steals from it for death and is at work draining the blood of the living into the heart of the dead and causing its rapid decline. And, as it turns out, Rhode Island seems to have been the center of this vampire folklore. So Lovecraft uses it. As he explains in the story, The Shunned House... As lately as 1892, an Exeter community exhumed a dead body and ceremoniously burnt its heart in order to prevent certain alleged visitations injurious to the public health and peace. Healthy people, it's clear, once they move into the shunned house, waste away, just like consumptives do. And fitting with the vampire folklore, the victims of the shunned house feel they are being choked or having their breath sucked away. Lovecraft even creates a character, the maid Anne White, who grew up in Exeter and thus knows the Exeter superstition, and only she at the time realizes what's happening, quote, alleging that there must lie buried beneath the house one of those vampires, the dead who retain their bodily form and live on the blood or breath of the living, end quote. Ultimately, we end up with the culprit being a French sorcerer and necromancer who has contrived to live forever and lies there swollen with the vital substance of his victims. But the way to solve the problem isn't through superstitious mumbo jumbo. It's through science. And science is how the problem is solved. And did I mention there were flamethrowers? Because that's just too cool. I'll leave you with one of the great excerpts from the story that shows that this work moves from the realm of fantasy into the realm of science fiction. In short, it seemed to my uncle and me that an incontrovertible array of facts pointed to some lingering influence in the shunned house traceable to one or another of the ill favored French settlers of two centuries before and still operative through rare and unknown laws of atomic and electronic motion, that the family of Roulet had possessed an abnormal affinity for outer circles of entity, dark spheres which for normal folk hold only repulsion and terror. Their recorded history seemed to prove. Had not, then, the riots of those bygone 1730s set motion certain kinetic patterns in the morbid brain of one or more of them, notably the sinister Paul Roulet, which obscurely survived the bodies murdered and buried by the mob and continued to function in some multidimensional space along the original lines of force determined by a frantic hatred of the encroaching community. Such a thing was surely not a physical or biochemical impossibility in the light of a newer science, which includes the theories of relativity and intra-atomic action. I do encourage you to check out Shunned House, and when you do, remember that the story is based on more than the incredible imagination of its author. There are the exhumed bodies and the unearthed graves to prove it. I look forward to joining you again very soon for another look back into genre history. Thank you.
3: There you go, Amy. Thank you so much. Big hugs. Thank you so much indeed. So next up is the main fiction and it is ticking by Alan M. Steele. Now, before becoming a science fiction author, Alan M. Steele was a journalist who worked for newspapers and magazines in Massachusetts, New Hampshire and his home state of Tennessee. But science fiction was his first love. So eventually he ditched journalism and instead began producing, which he made, decided, which he became a writer. How cool is that? And I tell you what is always lovely as well, Mine is when, and I haven't watched it actually since he kind of, you know, the one, but he gave a, a lovely shout out Alan M. Steele when he won the, the Hugo Award as well. He gave a, a nice shout to Starship Silver, which was just fantastic. Do you know what I mean? Just brilliant, Alan Steele a. is a lifelong space buff, and his interest has not only influenced his writing, but he's also taken some in, in some interesting places. He has witnessed numerous space shuttle launches. Now that would just be fantastic, to be quite honest. How cool would that be? Yes, Alan, thank you so much for you know I'm a big fan of Alan M. Steele as well. This story came out in the kind of collection. Solaris Rising 2, the new Solaris book of science fiction. And in there are just some, you know, amazing writers. Nancy Cress, James Lovegro, the late Eugene Foster, Nick Harkway, Christine Catherine Rush, Robert Reed, like I say, Alan M. Steele, Kim Larkin-Smith, so much there. And it's put together by Ian Waits as well. Just uh, a lovely, a lovely gentleman in the science fiction firmament. This story is narrated by Matt Arnold. Now, Matt, big thank you for for this as well. It means a lot. Thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud present. Ticking
5: by Alan M. Steele Harold and Cindy were trying to find something to eat in the hotel kitchen when they were attacked by the cook. Shortly after the refugees moved into the Wyatt Centrum Airport, They'd divvied up the jobs necessary for their continued survival. Harold, and the remaining desk clerk, Merle, had drawn the assignment of locating the hotel robots. That's all they had to do, just find them. Then tell Carl and Sharon, the two Minneapolis cops, who'd taken shelter at the Wyatt Centrum when their cruiser died on the street outside. The officers had their service automatics and a pump-action 12-gauge shotgun they'd taken from their car. Unlike most of their equipment, the guns weren't rendered inoperative. And they'd already discovered that an ordinary service robot could be taken out by a well-aimed gunshot. It was the big, heavy-duty ones that were hard to kill. So Harold and Merle spent the second day after the blackout prowling the hotel's ten floors. Merle knew where the robots normally operated, so they only needed to confirm their positions while avoiding being spotted and once they had located all the bots Merle remembered, they returned to the pool and told the cops. Carl and Sharon made sure the barricades were secure, at least for the time being, then went up into the hotel and, moving from floor to floor, blew away all the bots the civilians had found. This search and destroy mission netted ten housekeepers, five custodians, two room service waiters, and two security guards. According to Merle, that accounted for the hotel robots. This didn't include the huge bellhop that killed two staff members and a guest before someone picked up a chair and used it to smash the robot's CPU. That happened on the first day. Most of the guests fled after that, along with most of the remaining staff. After that sweep, everyone thought all the bots had been accounted for and destroyed. By the end of the third day, the thirty-one people hiding in the Wyatt Centrum's cathedral-like atrium were down to the last few cans of the junk food a couple of them had scavenged from a convenience store a few blocks down the street. Nobody wanted to venture outside, though. It had become too dangerous to leave the hotel, and the cops were reluctant to tear down the plywood boards they'd nailed across the ground-level doors and windows. So when Cindy asked Harold if he'd mind coming along while she checked out the kitchen, it can't all be fresh food, she'd said. "I must have some canned stuff, too. She didn't have to twist his arm very hard. Hunger wasn't the only reason why he went with her, though. Truth was, he wanted to get into Cindy's pants. Sure, she was at least twenty years younger, and he was married besides. But Harold had been eyeing her for the past three days. Only that morning he hadn't entirely turned his back when she'd taken a bath in the atrium swimming pool. As afraid as he was of dying, he was even more afraid of dying without having sex one last time. Such are the thought processes of the condemned. Perhaps he wouldn't get a chance to knock boots with her during this foray, but at least he'd be able to show off machismo by escorting her through the lightless kitchen. That was the general idea, anyway. But before he got a chance to nail Cindy, that goddamn bot nearly nailed them instead. Unfortunately, when Harold visited the kitchen earlier, he and Merle had neglected to check the big walk-in refrigerator. It wasn't entirely his fault. The two cooks they'd found attacked them the moment they pushed open the door, forcing a hasty retreat. Those were the first robots the cops had neutralized, and Merle believed they were the only ones in the kitchen, but he was wrong. A third bot had been trapped in the fridge when the lights went out. The walk-in was located in the rear of the kitchen, just a little farther than Harold had gone the first time he'd searched the room. They'd found a carton of breakfast cereal, which would be good for the kids, and Cindy was hoping to find some milk that hadn't spoiled yet. She'd just unlatched the chrome door handle, and he was standing just behind her when they heard the sound everyone had come to dread the last few days. Tick-tick, tick-tick-tick, tick, tick-tick-tick. Watch out! Harold yelled, and an instant later something huge slammed through the door. Cindy was knocked to the floor. Falling down was probably the only thing that saved her from having an eight-inch ice pick shoved into her chest. The cook was nearly as large as the bellhop. A Lang LHC-14 may seem harmless when it's stirring a vat of corned beef hash, but this one was hurtling toward them with a sharp metal spike clutched in its manipulator claw. And neither Harold or Cindy were armed. Get back! Get back! Get back! Harold yelled, as if she really needed any encouragement. Cindy scuttled backwards on hands, hips, and heels, while he threw himself away from the refrigerator, losing his flashlight in his haste. Even if he hadn't dropped the light, though, he would have been able to see the cook. Red and green LEDs blinked across the front of its box-like body, the glow reflecting off the hooded stereoscopic lenses within its upper turret. As it trundled through the door on soft tandem tires, The turret swept back and forth, clicking softly as the lenses captured first Cindy, then Harold, then Cindy again, mapping them, remembering their positions. "'Watch out! It's going to charge!' The turret snapped toward Harold as the bot determined which human was closer. At that moment his groping hands found the cold metal surface of something that moved—a dessert cart, complete with the molding remains of several cakes." Torture wagons, his wife called these things, and he was only too happy to use one in a less metaphorical way. As the cook rushed him, he dropped the light, dodged behind the cart, grabbed its glass handle, and slammed it straight into the robot. The impact dislodged the ice pick from the cook's claw. As it hit the tile floor, he wrenched the cart backward, then shoved it forward again, harder this time. Harold was trying to knock it over, but the bot had been designed for stability, bottom-heavy and with a low center of gravity. He was slowing it down, but he wasn't stopping it. The situation was both dangerous and absurd. The cook would trundle forward, its arms swinging back and forth, and Harold would ram the cart into it. The bot would halt for a second, but as soon as he pulled the cart back, the machine would charge again, its claws missing his face by only a few inches. It might have been funny. But when Harold glanced over his shoulder, he saw in the shadowed illumination cast by the dropped flashlight that the cook was gradually backing him into a corner between a rack and a range grill. Dale was right. These things learned fast. Cindy! Get this friggin' thing off me! He didn't hear anything save for the incessant ticking, the high-pitched whine of the bot servos, and the loud clang of his cart ramming it again. A chocolate cake toppled off the wagon and was immediately pulverized by the cook's wheels. He had the wild, hopeless hope that the icing would somehow screw it up, make it lose traction. Cindy! Damn it, had she abandoned him? All at once the robot's turret did a 180 turn, its lenses snapping away from him as its motion detectors picked up movement from somewhere behind it. In that instant, Cindy dashed out of the darkness, something raised in both hands above her head. The robot started to swivel around, then a cast-iron skillet came down on its turret and smashed its lenses. Nice shot. Although the robot could still hear them, it was effectively blinded. While its claw lashed back and forth, trying to connect with one of them, Cindy beat on it with the skillet while Harold continued to slam it with the dessert cart. Hit it! Hit it! Get the claws! Go for the top! The top! So forth and so on until one last blow from Cindy's skillet managed to scrag the CPU just beneath the upper turret. The LEDs went dark, and the cook halted. The ticking stopped. When Harold was sure that the cook was good and dead, he came out from behind the cart. Cindy was leaning against an island, breathing hard, skillet still clutched in her hand. She stared at him for a moment, then dropped the skillet. It hit the floor with a loud bang that echoed off the stainless steel surfaces around them. Thanks. Harold sagged against a counter. Tough, ain't it? Built to last. Her cotton tank top was damp with sweat, the nipples of her twenty-two-year-old breast standing out. You okay? I'm good. Harold couldn't stop staring at her. You? You? Cindy slowly nodded. She brushed back her damp hair, then looked up at him. Even in the wan glow of the dropped flashlight, she must have seen something in his eyes that she didn't like at all. Fine, just great, she turned away from him. Come on, let's get out of here. Harold let out his breath. Looked like he wasn't going to get laid after all, even if it was the end of the world. Cindy tried to hide her irritation, but she was still quietly fuming when she and the other guy—what was his name? Harold?—returned to the atrium. She'd noticed the way he'd been watching her for the last couple of days, of course. Men had been checking her out since she was fifteen, so she'd developed good radar for sexual attraction. Given the situation everyone was in, though, you'd think he'd have the common sense to put his impulses on hold— but for God's sake, they barely escape being killed, and what's the first thing he does? Stare at her tits. Enough. Cindy had heard his dejected sigh as she picked up the s- carton of single-serving cereal boxes she'd found and left the kitchen. She could have cared less. It was times like these when she wondered whether she wouldn't be better off being a lesbian. By the time they'd reached the pool, though, she'd almost forgotten the incident. As soon as she and What's-His-Name walked in, the kids were all over them. "'jumping up and down in their excitement to see what she'd found. "'Cindy couldn't help but smile as she carried the carton to the poolside terrace "'and put it down on a table. "'There were a half-dozen children among the refugees, "'the youngest a four-year-old boy and the oldest a twelve-year-old girl, "'and none of them seemed to mind that they didn't have any milk "'to go with the Cheerios and Frosted Flakes she handed out. "'Even kids can get tired of Spam and candy bars "'if that's all they had had to eat for three days.' Once they'd all received a box of cereal, Cindy took the rest to the cabana room she was sharing with Officer McCoy. She'd never thought that she'd welcome having a cop as a roommate, but Sharon was pretty cool. Besides, sleeping in the same room as a police officer assured that she wouldn't be bothered by any horny middle-aged guys who'd hold up in the Wyatt Centrum. Sharon was dozing on one of the twin beds when Cindy came in. She'd taken off her uniform shirt and was sleeping in her sports bra her belt with its holstered gun, taser, and baton at her side. She opened her eyes and watched as Cindy carefully closed the door behind her, making sure that she didn't accidentally knock aside the pillow they'd been using as a doorstop. With the power out, and even the emergency generator offline, there was nothing to prevent the guest room doors from automatically locking if they closed all the way. Find some food? Sharon asked. A little ready for dinner? Sharon "'sat up to peer into the carton put down beside her. "'That all? Couldn't you find something else?' "'Sorry I didn't have a chance to look,' Cindy told her about the cook. "'Sharon's expression didn't change, "'but Cindy figured that cops were usually poker-faced "'when it came to that sort of thing. "'And she left out the part about what's-his-name. "'No point in complaining about that. "'They had worse things to worry about. "'Well, anyway, I'm glad you made it back alive.' Sharon selected a box of Cheerios, but didn't immediately open it. One of the handheld radios the cops had borrowed from the hotel lay on the desk. Their own cell radios no longer worked, forcing them to use the older kind. Sharon picked it up and thumbed the talk button. Charlie Baker 2, Charlie Baker 1, how's everything looking? A couple of seconds went by, then Officer Overby's voice came over. Charlie Baker 2, 1024, all clear? Ten we'll relieve you in 15 minutes. Out? Sharon put down the radio, then nodded to the smartphone that lay on the dresser. What's happening there? Any change? Cindy picked up her phone, ran her finger down its screen. The phone would become silent once the charge ran down. But there was still a little bit of red on the battery icon. She pressed the volume control, and once again, they heard the only sound it made. Tick. Tick, tick. Tick-tick. Tick-tick-tick-tick. Tick-tick-tick like a cheap stopwatch that skipped seconds. That wasn't what she immediately noticed, though, but instead the mysterious number that appeared on its screen, four, five, seven, six, zero, three, six, zero, five, seven, a figure that decreased by one with each tick. For the last three days, Cindy's phone had done nothing else but tick irregularly and display a ten-digit number that changed every second or so. What these things signified she had no clue, but everyone else's phones, pads, and laptops had been doing the same thing ever since the blackout. It started the moment she was standing on the curb outside the airport, flagging down a cab while at the same time calling her friend in St. Paul to tell her that she'd arrived. That was when the phone suddenly went dead. Thinking that her call had been dropped, she'd pulled the phone from her ear, glanced at its screen, and heard the first weird ticks coming from She was still staring at the numbers which had appeared on the LCD display, when the cab that was about to pull up to the curb slammed into the back of a shuttle bus. A few seconds later, the pavement shook beneath her feet, and she heard the rolling thunder of an incoming airliner crashing on the runway and exploding. That was how it all began. Cindy glanced at her watch, nearly 6 p.m. Perhaps the atrium would cool down a little once the midsummer sun was no longer resting on the skylight windows. Unfortunately, the coming night would also mean that the robots would have an easier time tracking anyone still outside. Their infrared vision worked better than their normal eyes, someone had explained to her. Probably Dale. He seemed to know a lot about such things. Almost as if she'd read her mind, Sharon looked up from strapping on her belt. Oh, by the way, Dale asked me to tell you that he'd like to see you. Cindy was halfway to the bathroom. Its door was closed against the stench of an unflushed toilet. She stopped and turned around. "'Dale, did he say why? You said you're carrying a sat-phone, didn't you? He'd like to borrow it.' "'Yeah, why not?' Cindy shrugged. "'We won't get anyone with it. I've already tried to call my folks in Boston.' "'I told him that, but—' Sharon finished buttoning her shirt. "'Come on, I'd like to see what he's got in mind.' Dale's cabana was on the other side of the pool. Like Cindy, he was rooming with a cop, Carl Overby, Sharon's partner. In his case, though, it was a matter of insistence. Cindy didn't know much about him other than that he worked for some federal agency. He knew a lot about computers, and his job was important enough that he requested—demanded, really—that he stay with a police officer. Dale was pleasant enough. He faintly resembled Cindy's old high school math teacher, whom she'd liked, but he'd been keeping a certain distance from everyone else in the hotel. Cindy, hi! Dale looked up from the laptop on his desk when she knocked on the room's half-open door. Thanks for coming over. I've got a favor to ask. Do you... Have a satphone? Sure. It was in the backpack Cindy had carried with her on the plane. She'd flown to Minneapolis to hook up with an old college roommate for a camping trip in the Lakes region, where cell coverage was spotty and it wasn't smart to be out in the woods with no way to contact anyone. Not that it's going to do you any good. Dale didn't seem to hear the last. So long as its battery isn't dead. A questioning look. Cindy shook her head. I might be able to hook it up to my laptop through their serial ports. Maybe I can get through to someone. I don't know how. Sharon leaned against the door. Internet's gone down. My partner and I found that out when we tried to use our cruiser laptop. She nodded at the digits on Dale's laptop. We just got that. Same as everyone else. Yes, well, Dale absently ran a hand through thinning brown hair. The place I want to try is a little better protected than most. Where's that, sir? The Pentagon? Sharon's demeanor changed. She was a cop again, wanting a straight answer to a straight question. You showed us a Pentagon ID when you came over here from the airport. Is that where you work? No, that's just a place I sometimes visit. My job is somewhere else. Dale hesitated. Then he pulled his wallet from his back pocket. Opening it, he removed a laminated card and showed it to Sharon. This is where I work. Cindy caught a glimpse of the card. His photo was above his name, Dale F. Hines, and at the top of the card was National Security Agency. She had only the vaguest idea of what that was, but Sharon was obviously impressed. Okay, you're NSA. Her voice was very quiet. So maybe you know what's going on here. That's what I'd like to find out. Tonight, once we've gone upstairs to a balcony room... Minneapolis was dying. From the balcony of a concierge suite, the only tenth-floor room whose door wasn't locked, the city was a dark expanse silhouetted by random fires. No lights in the nearby industrial park, and the distant skyscrapers were nothing but black lifeless shapes looming in the starless night. Sharon thought there ought to be the sirens of first responders, police cruisers, fire-trucks, "'ambulances, but she heard nothing but an occasional gunshot. "'The airport was on the other side of the hotel, "'so she couldn't tell whether the jet which had crashed there was still ablaze. "'Probably not. "'And if its fire had spread from the runway to the hangars or terminals, "'those living in the Wyatt Centrum would have known it by now. "'The hotel was only a mile away. "'A muttered obscenity brought her back to the balcony. "'Dale was seated at a sofa end table they dragged through a sliding door.' His laptop lay open upon it, connected to Cindy's sat-phone. He'd hoped to get a clear uplink once he was outside, and a top-floor balcony was the safest place to do this, and it appeared to have worked. Gazing over her shoulder, Sharon saw that the countdown had disappeared from the screen, to be replaced by the NSA seal. You got through. Cindy stood in the open doorway, holding a flashlight over Dale's computer. The sapphone belonged to her, so she'd insisted on coming along. Sharon had two, mainly because Dale might need protection. After the incident in the kitchen, there was no telling how many bots might still be active in the hotel, as yet undiscovered. "'I got there, yeah, but I'm not getting in. Look!' Dale's fingers ran across the keyboard, and a row of asterisks appeared at the password bar. He tapped the enter key. A moment later, ACCESS DENIED appeared beneath the bar. "'That was my back-door password. It locked out my official one, too.' "'At least you got through. That's got to count for something, right?' Dale quietly gazed at the screen, absently rubbing his lower lip. "'It does,' he said at last. "'But I don't like what it means.' He didn't say anything else for a moment or two. "'Want to talk about it?' Sharon asked. We've got a right to know, don't you think? Dale slowly let out his breath. This isn't just any government website. It belongs to the Utah Data Center, the NSA's electronic surveillance facility in Bluffdale, Utah. He glanced up at Sharon. Ever heard of it? Isn't that the place where they bug everyone's phone? That's one way of putting it, yeah. Bluffdale does more than that, though. A lot more. They're tapped into the entire global information grid. Not just phone calls. Every piece of email. Every download. Every data search. Every bank transaction. Anything that's transmitted or travels down a wire gets filtered through this place. You gotta be kidding. Harold appeared in the door. Doorway behind Cindy, apparently having found the restroom he'd been searching for. He tagged along as well, saying that Sharon might need help if they ran into any more bots. Sharon knew that this was just an excuse to attach himself to Cindy, but didn't say anything. Her roommate knew how to keep away from a wolf. And indeed, she left the doorway and squeezed in beside Dale, maintaining a discreet distance from the annoying salesman. Not at all. There's two and a half acres of computers there with enough processing power to scan a yottabyte of information every second. That's like being able to read five hundred quintillion pages. Harold gave a low whistle. All right, I understand, Sharon said. But what does that have to do with us? The legs of Dale's chair scraped against concrete as he turned half around to face her and the others. Look, something has shut down the entire electronic infrastructure right? Electricity, cars, phones, planes, computers, robots, everything networked to the grid was knocked down three days ago. And then almost immediately after that, every part connected to the system that's mobile and capable of acting independently, namely the robots, came back online, but now with only one single purpose. Kill any human they encounter. Give me another headline, Harold said dryly. I think I might have missed the news. Hush. Cindy glared at him, and he shut up. The only other thing that still functions are networked electronics like smartphones and laptops, stuff that runs on batteries, but they don't do anything except display a number and make a ticking sound just like the robots do. And that number seems to decrease by one every time there's a tick. Yeah, I noticed that too, Cindy said. It began the moment my cell phone dropped out. Dale gave her a sharp look. "'You were on the phone when the blackout happened?' Cindy nodded. "'Do you happen to remember what the number was "'when it first appeared on your phone screen?' "'Sort of. "'It was seven billion and something?' "'About seven and a half billion, would you say?' Dale asked. She nodded again, and he hissed beneath his breath. "'That's what I thought it might be.' "'What are you getting at?' Sharon asked." although she had a bad feeling that she already knew. The global population is approximately seven and a half billion. Dale's voice was very low. At least, it's about how many people were alive on Earth three days ago. Sharon felt a cold snake slither into the pit of her stomach. A stunned silence settled upon the group. Her ears picked up low, purring sounds from somewhere in the distance. But it was drowned out when both Cindy and Harold started speaking at once. But—but why—what the hell are you—I don't know! Dale threw up his hands in exasperation. I can only guess, but— He nodded toward the laptop. The fact that the most secure computer system in the world is still active, but not letting anyone in, tells me something. This isn't a cyber attack, and I don't think a hacker or terrorist group is behind it either. He hesitated. I think... I think it may have come out of Bluffdale. Sharon stared at him. Are you saying the NSA did this? No. I'm saying the NSA's computers might have done this. Dale shook his head. They always said the day might come when the electronic world might become self-aware, start making decisions on its own... Maybe that's what's happening here, with Bluffdale as the source. The purring sound had become a low buzz. Sharon ignored it. But why would it start killing people? What would that accomplish? Maybe it's decided that seven and a half billion people are too many, and the time has come to pare down the population to more, well, more sustainable numbers. Dale shrugged. It took most of human history for the world to have just one billion people, but just another two hundred for there to be six billion, and only thirty after that for it to rise to seven and a half billion. We gave Bluffdale the power to interface with nearly everything on the planet, and a mandate to protect national security. Maybe it's decided that the only certain way to do so is to— What's that noise? Harold asked. The buzzing had become louder. Even as Sharon turned to see where the sound was coming from, she'd finally recognized it for what it was. A police drone, the civilian version of the airborne military robots used in Central America and the Middle East. She'd become so used to seeing them make low-altitude surveillance sweeps of Minneapolis's more crime-ridden neighborhoods that she had disregarded the sound of its push-prop engine. That was a mistake. For a moment or two, she saw nothing. Then she caught a glimpse of firelight reflecting off the drone's bulbous nose and low-swept wings. It was just a few hundred feet away and headed straight for the balcony. Down! she shouted, and then threw herself headfirst toward the door. Harold was in her way. She tackled him like a linebacker and hurled him to the floor. Get out of there! she yelled over her shoulder as they scrambled for cover. They'd barely managed to dive behind a couch when the drone slammed into the hotel. Afterwards, Harold reckoned he was lucky to be alive. Not just because Officer McCoy had thrown him through the balcony door, but also because the drone's hydrogen cell was almost depleted when it made its kamikaze attack. So there hadn't been an explosion which might have killed both of them. Nor a fire that would have inevitably swept through the Wyatt Centrum. But Cindy was dead. And so was Dale. The cop's warning hadn't come in time. The drone killed them before they could get off the balcony. He later wondered if it had simply been random chance that its infrared night vision had picked up four human figures and homed in on them, or if the Bluffdale computer had backtracked the satphone link from Dale's laptop and dispatched the police drone to liquidate a possible threat. He'd never know, and probably didn't matter anyway. Harold didn't know Dale very well, but he missed Cindy more than he thought he would. He came to realize that his attraction to her hadn't been purely sexual. He'd liked her, period. He wondered if his wife was still alive, and reflected on the fact that he'd only been three hours from home when his car went dead on a side street near the hotel. He regretted all the times he'd cheated on her when he'd been on the road, and swore to himself that if he lived through this and she did too, he'd never again pick up another woman. The drone attack was the last exciting thing to happen to him or anyone else in the hotel for the next couple of days. They loafed around the atrium pool like vacationers who didn't want to go home, scavenging more food from the kitchen, and going upstairs to break into vending machines, drinking bottled water, getting drunk on booze stolen from the bar. Harold slept a lot, as did the others, and joined poker games when he was awake he volunteered for a four-hour shift at the lobby barricades, keeping a sharp eye out for roaming robots. He saw nothing through the peepholes and the plywood boards, except for a few stray dogs and some guy pushing a shopping cart, loaded with stuff he'd probably looted from somewhere. Five days after the blackout, nearly all the phones, pads, and laptop computers in the hotel were dead. Their batteries and power packs drained. But then Officer McCoy, searching Cindy's backpack for an address book she could use to notify the late girl's parents, discovered another handy piece of high-tech camping equipment, a photovoltaic battery charger. Cindy had also left behind her phone. It hadn't been used since her death, so its battery still retained a whisker of power. Officer McCoy hooked the phone up to the recharger, placed them on a table in the atrium, and before long they had an active cell phone. Its screen remained unchanged, except that the number was much lower than it had been two days ago. It continued to tick, yet the sound was increasingly sporadic, sometimes as much as a minute would go by between one tick and the next. By the end of the fifth day, a few people removed some boards and cautiously ventured outside. They saw little and heard almost nothing. The world had become quieter and much less crowded. Although Harold decided to remain at the Wyatt Centrum until he was positive that it was safe to leave, the cops decided that their presence was no longer necessary. The hotel's refugees could fend for themselves, and the city needed all the cops they could get. Before Officer McCoy left, though, she gave him Cindy's phone so he could keep track of its ticking, slowly decreasing number. In the dark hours just before the dawn of the sixth day, Harold was awakened by light "'hitting his eyes. "'At first he thought it was morning sun "'coming in through the skylight. "'But then he opened his eyes "'and saw that the bedside table lamp was lit. "'An instant later, the wall TV came on. "'It showed nothing but fuzz, "'but nonetheless it was working. "'Power had returned. "'Astonished, he rolled over "'and reached for Cindy's cell phone. "'It no longer ticked, "'yet its screen continued to display a number.' frozen and unchanging one zero 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 (laughs) zero
3: Copyright is Alan M. Steele. Alan, thank you so much. One day we might get to have a drink, sir, over a bar. That would be very nice indeed. And a big thank you to Matt Arnold as well for that narration. So don't forget, our sponsorship is Octagon Technology. 20 years, 20 years, man, of fixing people's computers. Do you know what I mean? Oh, that must be some headache there well done oxygen technologies and a big thank you for looking after rose over at sofa con as well and everybody else who kind of chipped in and helped that do you know what i mean it's funny because i kind of now stressful as out mind you just, uh sofa con two and it kind of when after you kind of press that stop you know that kind of final stop you think that nah, not again no nah, i'm not again and a couple of months afterwards, I'm still feeling like that, mate. <laughs> so, <laughs> maybe another couple of years' time. Oh, anyway. There you go. Big thank you to everyone there. So we've got our little interview by our very own Jeremy Sal. Jeremy's went and bloody getting a hold of Ellen Datlow for a little interview, and I will play it now.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Jeremy, assistant editor for Starship Sofa, and today we've got an incredibly special guest on. Uh, Ellen Datlow, you m- may have heard of her. She's a long-time editor specialing in horror and all subgenres. She's won the Bram Stoker Award, the Shirley Jackson Award, the Locus Award, the World Fantasy Award nine times, and the Life Achievement Award by the Horror Writers Association. She's edited countless anthologies, most recently the Doll Collection by Tor Books, and the ongoing uh, Best Horror of the Year published by Nightshade Books. She's currently also one of the uh, commissioning editors for Tor.com. And if you cross her, prepare for a lot of nightmares in this life and the next. Ellen, thank you so much for coming to the show.
7: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Not at all. So tell us, out of all the genres, why is it what it captivates you about horror? Why do you choose to work in horror?
7: Well, I I love science fiction, fantasy, and horror, but um, there's something about horror that <sighs> the dark parts of horror. I, I like being disturbed by what I write. I like what I read, rather. Um, People have been asking me this for years, and I'm not sure why I love horror. I've always loved it. Um, The thing about working in horror, though, is that it crosses over with science fiction and, and fantasy into dark fantasy. So it's, in a way, more versatile than science fiction. And fantasy, because it can be, it can encompass anything. Also, a lot of stories that are considered mainstream are horror. Hmm. So, to me, it's so broad in what it encompasses that I think it's a fascinating. It's not. It's hard to call it a genre, even because hmm. it. It's more as very. A lot of people have said it's a tone, it's a tonal thing. What makes something horror? How dark does it have to be to be considered horror? Um, for me personally, I just enjoy reading it. Mm. I don't really like most horror movies, but I love reading horror stories, both supernatural and psychological horror. Um, and I guess I don't. I guess what I'm saying is I don't have an answer. I don't know why. I just like. I like dark fiction. So if you hear something in the background, it's my like cats are chasing each other. Back and forth, <laughs> so no you can worries. hear
0: a thump, thump, thump. It's cats. Good to know. Just make sure it's not uh, one of the countless authors who are locked in the basement that you use for no, each no, of the it's anthologies. Not them.
7: I keep
0: them in my attic. Oh, okay, in the <laughs> attic. No worries. Good to know. And so, yeah, about the cross thing, it's interesting because horror does span everything. I mean, it spans everything from C.J. Cherry to uh, True Detective, that's on on HBO at the moment. And it oh, is a, yeah, it is a tone at the moment. I mean, it's everything from the uh, the macabre, the uncanny, and it goes into the full, uh, super, yeah, the uh-huh. uh, weird fiction of H. P. Lovecraft as well. And so, is on that point, is there anything that you never tired tire of seeing? And, like, are there clichés that, like, you're always happy to, happy to see? Like, do you never get tired of reading about that uh, New England, Silent Hill-esque town full of people who are, quite, who are all insane and, like, all this weird stuff's going on? Do you never get tired of seeing some clichés? I get tired of
7: bad fiction. Um, <laughs> seriously, uh, anything can be done well you know i at one time i said i never wanted to read another zombie story again and then i would read zombie stories that were brilliant that were just interesting it's what you do with the trope it's what you do with the stereotype how you make it your own mm. how you include as a writer how you add your own voice how you add your own story your characters and that can make something brilliant out of an idea that you thought you could never you would never want to see again so i'll never say never to a particular type of monster or mm situation I mean I can say I mean right now you know every once in a while I say I can't stand there's a certain kind of British fiction where short stories mostly that um, you know a couple goes to uh, goes on vacation they go to someplace they're on the they're about to break up they're miserable and then bad things happen to them they go to a house they go to a, the seashore or something and <clears throat> excuse me I Want to beat my head against the wall when I read something, and I said, "Oh, it's another one of those." So I could say that right now, if I never see another one of those, I'll be happy. However, I'm sure I will read some this year. I mean, I've just—I'm not really—I'm starting to be deep into reading for 2015. I'm sure I will find wonderful stories using just that setup, but but the story will really different and will really get to me somehow.
0: Yeah, so okay. uh, so I
7: never say never.
0: <laughs> right. This next question is probably a little redundant, but is there anything that you're sick to death of seeing? Like anything that you like? Obviously, if you've answered it already, we can skip it. But is there anything that you just never want to see again ever? Besides the uh, the stupid the couple, couple that goes to the seashore. Uh,
7: <laughs> no, no. I mean, there, there's a lot of short fiction. A lot of short horror stories focus on children. And I'm not tired of it. I don't get tired of it. But they have to be careful if I'm doing an anthology. You have to make sure it's such a big part of horror fiction: a child, a victimized child, or someone who was, as a child, victimized and looking back or dealing with that. Mm. I and mean, there's so many var- There are variations of that, but that's that is a major trope of horror fiction: children in danger or mm. children harmed. And um, it can get really dull after a while, just like anything. And Again, if if the story is good enough to to push me beyond the, oh, no, not another one of those, I'll love it. And there are a lot of really good stories like that about children. But also, as I said, when I'm putting together an anthology, I have to be careful that I don't fill the book with stories about children or by children, you know, told by children. I have to be careful of that. I think every editor does because that is such a big part of horror fiction.
0: Mm. Definitely. And on that note, how exactly do you read for your anthologies? I mean, do you select the authors in mind, or do you uh, have a certain... You, know, you
7: don't mean Year's Best, you mean my other anthologies? Uh, in, gen-
0: in general, really, because of Year's Best, I know that you... Um, and It's an open invitation, but uh, for your other anthologies, such as the Doll Collection or the... Um, I think it was the Car- Carnival one, uh, the one with the, the clown? Nightmare Carnival. Yeah, that for one, original, yeah.
7: yeah. For original thol- anthologies, I usually have writers who I approach... People who I've worked with before, people whose stories I've noticed when I've read for the best horror of the year, and I'll ask them to submit stories. Um, And usually, it's pretty much invitation only, with occasional, you know, something happens and I'll talk to someone and I'll say, I want you to send me a story uh, for this anthology. Because I always ask for about a third more stories than I need because a third of the writers drop out for one reason or another. Um, I'd say usually that happens. Um, Either they can't come up with an idea, they don't have the time, whatever. Uh, They forget about it. Uh, So, you know, I usually need more stories. I I usually ask for more stories than I actually need. Most of my anthologies are about 100,000 words unless it's uh, deliberately a large anthology. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I'll go with people whose writing I know. I may not have published them before, but I may ask them for a story, and I may not take that story. I mean, there are people who I've... I approached what I was doing. Uh, I published them in Year's Best. I asked them for stories, original stories, and then I didn't like the stories that, for that particular anthology. Um, for most of those people, I eventually did buy new stories from them, original stories from them. So I, you know, I feel bad when I turn down a story that I ask for. Hmm. Um, but if it doesn't work for me or it doesn't work for the anthology, I have to do that. I just have to turn it down. And now I forgot what the question was. Oh yeah, and okay, I do also. I do reprint anthologies aside from the Best of the Year. Now those anthologies, um, if it, depending on the subject, I may put an out, open call out and say recommend thought. stories. I'm sorry if you hear that thing; it tells me it's a message. I'm ignoring them, but you can't. I can't. I don't know how to shut it off. Oh, I guess I could shut my sound off, but then you couldn't hear me probably. Yeah. Um, anyway. I will, I have occasionally put out a call for like, tell me about your stories on this theme, you know, if not your stories, but tell, recommend them. But the danger with that is people are going to recommend their own stories and that they're going to be a ton of really bad stories. Um, I have done it though, but, but I would prefer to do what I do is, um, I'll go to all the as many writers as I can think of, either writers who I think have done a particular story on a theme, then I I remember the story and I want that story. I'll approach them and say, I want to use your story for this anthology. Or else I just go to a bunch of writers who I've worked with over the years, and that's like hundreds, and say, do a story on this theme. Now, sometimes they'll say, no, I don't. I don't think I do. And then I'll say, but, I remember this story. I published it in the years past. Are you sure? It's like, isn't that about blah, blah? blah? And they said, oh, yeah. It's like so, some writers forget what they've written. They don't or they don't realize it works for a theme. But, yeah, I mean, I'll approach, you know, as many writers as I can think of for stories that might work for a particular theme. I mean, I did that for a book that's coming out this fall from Tacky called The Monstrous. I approached – I made a list of writers who I thought um, would be good for the book, and I approached all of them. If I, if, Even if I didn't have specific stories, I said, do you have any stories about this subject and this is what I'm looking for? And they would send me stories. I had to read about – I read – I forget how many, but uh, over 100 stories I know I read. Mm-hmm. And um, and I – some of them, you know, I took – I managed – I don't remember how many I ended up taking um, – But I bought a certain amount of stories, the ones that I thought worked for the anthology. So, you know, I will ask an author to self-select, to select a story that they think might work if it's a reprint um, anthology. So it depends on the book.
0: Okay, yeah. So you pretty much build up an archive of uh, all those you're familiar with and you just go from there, I suppose.
7: Yeah, and don't forget, because I've been editing a best of the year for 20... How many years? I'm like 28... Oh God, uh, let's see, twenty <laughs> nine years now. Oh my God! Wow. Um, I don't always remember the stories I've published, but I often do, or I have a feel for. I kind of remember. Oh yeah, I look at that title. I said, Oh yeah, I remember that. I like that. Hmm. So I, you know, I have twenty nine years worth of best of the year stories to pull out of my brain if I can to try to remember. You know, if there are some interesting stories that might work for an anthology. Hmm. for a theme anthology i mean that's one way i do it
0: There are many ways to go about it, i suppose and following up on a discussion i think we had a few weeks ago um can one go overboard in horror is there something that you will not accept such as sexual violence child abuse blasphemy uh or anything on no. that note i
7: mean it depends on the story it hmm. all depends on how it's done in the story i was on a panel. Um, at, in Atlanta, the World Horror Convention slash um, Stokers, we had a panel. Is can you go too far? Is, is there such a thing as going too far in horror? Said, Absolutely not. We all agreed. No, if you do it right, if, this, mm. if the violence or whatever it is is important to the story, if you do it well, if you're a good writer, there's nothing you can't do. I mean, nothing is taboo, but you mm. have to be able to do it well and not mm. just be exploitive, exploitative, exploitative. You cannot just exploit the thing you yeah. need to be doing it and putting it on paper for a reason not just to shock the mm. reader i mean that's bullshit
0: pretty much is. it has to, yeah. it
7: has to be in the it has to be for the story it
0: mm. has to be within the context i suppose because we've got that uh, wave of um, exploitation films in the 70s and 80s that just had like every like the last house and the left and um other films like that that just like rolled out the shop for sake of shock value but, um, I just don't watch. Them.
7: I've never watched them. I never saw them. I just had no interest
0: in them. Yeah, it's it's oh, fair enough. Yes. Yeah, and um, yeah, I suppose it's also um, about the, in the way the way it's written. I suppose like obviously I don't have as much experience as you do because I'm sure you see all sides of the equation. But um, it sometimes do. You, would you say like it depends on the uh, the way and like whose perspective it's from? Who like who we're trying to sympathise with? What themes that the writer's trying to work with? It like well, there are
7: a lot of elements I mean mm. the elements of any good story um, you know it's the tone the point of view the character mm. the setting I mean all these things have to come together and it's the same for something that where if you're just sho- trying to shock someone for shock's sake like what's the point mm. if you try and tell a story about something that's upsetting and shocking you can do it in a way that that works um, I really think it's all on the writing
0: mm. yeah that's fair enough it's def- uh, fair enough and uh, on that note is it a good sign if a story unsettles you or disarms you or terrifies you and should horror like rip us away from this uh privileged uh, cocoon of a life that we've settled uh, settled ourselves into should horror like a good story rip us away from that and just plunge it's us into the not you're in,
7: it's fiction well I mean yeah, well yes hey, it's a, know, come on it's no I mean it's gonna it's gonna entertain me um, when I mean I want to be disturbed now I'm very rarely I I don't even think I could ever think of a story that ever terrified me.
0: Mm. I don't
7: even know. I don't even, I don't think I can even think of anything. I expect horror to disturb me and to get me out of my comfort zone. Um, Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. But I have to be involved in the story and the characters Mm. in some way. I'm not saying the characters have to all be nice people, (laughs) but there has to be someone who I can at least want to read about. You know, um, it's it's not as necessary for a short story as a novel, but, you know, and I prefer short horror fiction anyway to novels, but um, there has to be something that attracts me to the story, whatever it is, and I want to be enveloped in a story. When I'm reading a story, I want to suspend, suspend my disbelief during the reading of the story. It takes me out of my real life. It doesn't... What was? What did you say? What did you? How did you put it?
0: Yeah, is it a good sign if a story unsettles or disarms, uh, disarms us?
7: Yes, but it's not taking me out of my real life because it's not. A, it's a story. Well, yeah,
0: but <laughs> so I mean in the figurative sense. Of course, I mean
7: I. I nah. <laughs> yes, I want to be unsettled, but on the other hand, as soon as I stop reading, it's like, oh, here I am. I'm on my couch. Here my. <laughs> you know, here's my life, and things are horrible in the world, but, you know, for, for, you know, 15 minutes, I read a really good story that really got me, and I feel horrible for the characters, and that was a really good story, but it doesn't, does it do anything to me outside of the story? It may last, it may linger, and it, any good story might linger and make me think about it. Will it make me do something different in real life, like take an, action, you know, take a political stand, or... I don't think so. I mean, I, that may be asking... I don't think... that I'm not sure that's where you're going, but no, I not think really. that's asking to, to fiction.
0: Yeah. I was just asking so, really... for may, yeah.
7: it, What it can do is it can make you look at another person's point of view that you wouldn't thought, have thought of.
0: Hmm.
7: Of being in that person's shoes. Um, I mean, I think good fiction can teach you, but it shouldn't teach you pedantically, you know? Hmm. When I was a kid, I think I... I took, more, t- took fiction to heart more than I do now. I was influenced probably as a young person reading, um, not necessarily horror, but whatever I read. I think that I was much more influenced by what I read in fiction then than I am now. And I don't know. I mean, you just, I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm jaded. Or I realize that, you know, it's like, it's still, it's fiction. And that's, that's a there's. I mean, certain fiction changed my life. And I'm not sure that would happens anymore mm. for me because I think I'm too old for it <laughs> to have it change my life.
0: Yeah, I'm not really sure that's no, um, yeah.
7: a sad thing. <laughs>
0: yeah, fair enough. I'm not really sure I'd want any story to change my life or anything. But, um, yeah, basically, it was just asking like, if, if a good – if it's
7: <laughs> well, Okay, let me okay, – like, <coughs> excuse me. That's fine. I'll tell you something that changed my life. And, and I mean, it's not horror. And it changed my life for the better, I think, and it made me think about things that I hadn't thought about before. Um, but it was—I was young; I was in my early twenties or whenever I read it. The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin—it wholly, it completely changed my views—not my views, but my understanding of gender and gender roles. What she did in that book, and I don't think fiction can do will do that for me anymore. I don't, you know. And I'm not sure I needed to do that anymore. Uh, anyway, do you see what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, basically, I wasn't, so, yeah. This a
7: bad thing. When, when, interest, when certain things change your point of view about how people are and how, you know, and just real life, it can be a positive experience.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's just basically, yeah, just asking if, like, if it's a good sign of a story unsettles you or disarms you or perhaps even changes your point of view. But, yeah, that's mm-hmm. definitely a very good answer. And but
7: I also think it's rare. It's rare? I think it's rare that it happens. Yeah. That a, story is, a horror story is going to change your point of view.
0: I'm not particularly sure I'd want most of the horror stories I read to change my life, <laughs> considering most well, of the stuff no, that's in there. No, I
7: know, I know.
0: No, that's right. And um, another thing, why is there such a misconception about horror? I mean, when someone thinks of horror, they think of bucket loads of gore. Uh, jump scares, I, I think,
7: think. you can blame movies. for Yeah, that. Evil Dead and stuff, the stuff like that. For movies, of course, I think. Um, I mean, I don't think people. First of all, horror was originally within with mainstream. It was considered mainstream. It was not considered a, its own section. And I think once you got, I'm, I'm not, it's not even the separation of horror fiction into a particular genre area in the bookstore. It's the movies. Unfortunately. Movies, certain movies have influenced the public perception of horror. And now almost everybody who doesn't know horror, who, doesn't, who thinks they don't like horror, they, it's because they think it's slasher stuff. And that's unfortunate. And I don't know what can, you know, HWA tries to fight that all the time. I try to fight that. You know, yes, I love horror. But, you know, do you realize Edgar Allan Poe is horror? Um, Flannery O'Connor is a horror. There's horror in Shakespeare. You know, so, I mean, all you can do is ignore people or try to say, no, you don't understand. That's not what, that's not horror. That's a tiny, tiny type of horror. Mm. But I believe the movie screwed it up. You know, they really hurt horror as a, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think they've heard
0: it. Yeah, definitely. Whenever I say I, I, whenever I say to people, "Oh, I enjoy horror," automatically they've as uh, people who uh, could do
7: a scan think you're an axe murderer. right? Yeah, they
0: think no, they think <laughs> of Bruce Campbell with a shotgun from Evil Dead. That's all they think about. They don't think too. of. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. think about the subtlety and nuance of exploring things of the uncanny and they don't think about Neil Gaiman and H.P. Lovecraft, they automatically no, think... they don't think yeah. Neil's
7: writes horror, but he does. His, some of his that's best right. stories yeah. are horror stories.
0: Yeah, and horror is infiltrated almost pretty much all genres. I mean, even uh, a lot of fantasy, it just explores themes of uh, how humanity is uh, degraded and how the um, and how man is just descended into madness and that's a uh, an element that horror often uses. But, um, well,
7: there's a, there's a continuum between dark fantasy and horror.
0: Hmm.
7: Um, I mean, I do feel there's kind of a difference. I've talked about that a little bit. Um, I mean, I like both a lot, but to me, horror, there's something darker, something more nihilistic, not nihilistic exactly, but more negative in horror than there is in dark fantasy. Dark fantasy seems to have more happy endings um, than horror would. Hmm. And there's, there seems to be an exuberance that is not... Um, now, I love horror, I mean, for its what it gives me. I don't feel it's exuberant, though, if you see uh, what I mean. I think dark fantasy has an exuberance to it that, that uh, cancels out the darkness somewhat. Mm. I mean, that's just my opinion.
0: Yeah, fair enough. And uh, speaking of which, yeah, so what about uh, dark science fiction? Because science fiction... It would probably be the like. It's probably possibly the closest to realist in the way. Like if you get um, near future science fiction with uh, mixed in with a little bit of horror, uh, it seems I to be just the one
7: SF horror. It's science fiction horror. The Fly, Alien, um, who goes there, you know, which is made into this thing. Hmm. <clears throat> um, there's always been science fiction horror. Um, it's perfectly natural it's a, a lot of Tiptrees uh, stories were horrific science fiction mm. a lot of Harlan Ellison did science oh. fiction horror I have no mouth and I'm a scream
0: that's incredible so, I mean yeah. it's,
7: it's a definitely it's a subgenre of horror mm. I mean there are several you know that's one of the subgenres science fiction horror
0: yeah, I suppose, I mean, sub-genre
7: yeah. of the horror the whole big horror cake.
0: Yeah, I suppose horror just blends, as you said in the beginning, the horror blends into uh, all the subgenres and manages to uh, cherry pick the ones. Them. Yeah, pretty much. And so, obviously, I don't have as much experience in this area as you do, but horror isn't doing particularly well in horror in uh, the novel form. Whenever you go to the store, there's no dedicated horror section as there is with uh, fantasy, but it's doing extremely well in short stories and anthologies as you and your work have proven many a time. And so would you say that there's really a future for monsters and evil children and uh, uh, creepy chants? Would you say that there's definitely a future for the public uh, in, in that short genre? short
7: stories? I hate to say it, okay. Being at Atlanta, I have had discussions um short stories versus novels. And I actually think horror works better as a short, for it, short story up to novella than a novel. I say most supernatural fiction does not work as novels, they just, um, they can't sustain the suspension of disbelief through through an entire book. But that's my, again, that's my opinion. And I'm a short story editor. I love short stories. I hardly ever read novels. um, I'm sure there's a, there's a market for horror novels. I mean, they're selling. I mean, some of them certainly are selling. Um, there are people, I don't think they're very good. Uh, some of them. I mean, <laughs> some of the ones that I read is like, are you kidding me? You know, it's like, a, this should be a novella. Why wasn't this a novella? You know, it doesn't need to be a novel. Um, I really think the natural form for, um, for horror is a short story up to novella. Or a short novel,
0: maybe. Mm. No, like a like novel section? It's sort a of
7: novella of... Um, uh, 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 the Haunting of Hill House is pretty short, I think. I, mean, I think most of – many of the classic horror novels were short, mm. were not big books. Yeah, that's – So, that's, uh, is there a future? Yeah, certainly in short stories. <laughs> yeah, as far as markets, that's another thing. I mean, short story markets are um, – there are not many short story – there are not many horror magazines, but there never have been that many horror magazines. Um mm the horror anthology is really king yeah I mean that's you get most short stories in horror these days
0: Mm, to be honest like in the the yeah sorry in the anthology section in the uh, bookstore pretty much it's you and uh, Paula Gurren who actually and Stephen Graham Jones really dominate the anthology section Stephen Stephen, Stephen Jones oh Stephen Jones yeah
7: Stephen Graham Jones is
0: the writer, Steve Jones is the editor. Oh, Steve, so must have mixed them up. But yet, um, yeah, basically, you're the ones who uh, dominate the anthology section. And I find it, it's very yeah. Oh, I'm there?
7: I'm so glad. In yep. Australia? Oh, that yep. makes me feel Oh, good, yeah, annoying. pretty much every bookstore.
0: I'm not even joking. I, like, I went to um, down south for a holiday, uh, you know, this beach town, and I was browsing through the bookstore, and your anthologies were there. Like, uh, one to five, best of years. So, wow! Yeah, well, you, I hope
7: someone's buying them. I hope they weren't all just sitting, sitting there for five years.
0: <laughs> I, uh, they were new. Though some of them were new, so someone must have been buying them. And <laughs> adi- additionally, <laughs> any personal favourites, uh, any personal favourite films, uh, any stories that are any authors, any magazines that you've uh, been, been particularly fond of in the re- uh, last few months. I like so that's I just, incredible.
7: I, read, I saw that. I liked that a lot. Yeah. In fact, I liked it so much that I um, paid for the Kickstarter, and I'm going to get the pop-up book. Incredible. <laughs> it. <Yeah>. it's, <laughs> Australia's
0: really good with uh, horror. That's an Australian film. And, oh, uh, right.
7: Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: And it's, yeah, Australia's uh, doing pretty good with horror, and that's a fantastic film. Uh, anything else uh, recently?
7: Uh, there, well, I love Mad Max, but I don't know if you, that's dystopian versus... Um, I don't know if that's horror. I mean, I guess it's kind of, it, again, it could be partially. Um, well, I mean, there are writers who I've been working with, who I've been buying, who I think are doing fine horror stories. I Dell Bailey, and they're not, the thing is, that many of them are not known for their horror. Dale Bailey writes, he's, he's he's written two stories for me for tour.com. One was not a horror story, it was, I guess, kind of almost mainstream with a weird ending, kind of dark fantasy ish. And his, um, then the one, there's one that's up for the, um, Jackson Award, did science fiction horror, <clears throat> but he does write really interesting horror, and I've taken some of his stories from my year's best over time. And um, of course, Nathan Ballingrid's fabulous. I mean, I love his stuff, and John Langan, and Laird Barron. I mean, I love their short fiction, and Margot Lanigan. Margot writes really fabulous, really weird horror short stories. And um, someone who surprised me—oh, another person who you didn't—we didn't mention in Australia, Garth Nix. Yes, I didn't know he wrote horror. Until he wrote a really horrific story for one of my Terry and my um, YA anthologies, I think it was for After, and then he wrote me this brilliant story for Fearful Symmetries <clears throat> that I've taken for the year's best. Um, and also, I think um, Jonathan Strawn took for the year's best too. And don't ask me to type name it because it's got three names that are unrelated: Shay Wortham, something. <laughs> They're three words: Corsham, Shay, something. Anyway. Um, it's really good, and I was I was kind of very surprised because I didn't know he wrote horror, mm. and it's brilliant. Yeah, it was very econo- economical, and it's I guess it's kind of science fiction. Have you read it? Do you know what I'm talking uh, about? I don't.
0: I'm familiar with Goffnick's, uh stuff. I've been reading him since I was a kid, but I haven't actually. I haven't, I haven't read, read the story. Damn, I mean, no.
7: last year's year's best.
0: Uh, I don't. And f- it was in
7: yeah. wonderful symmetries. So okay. Yeah. I'll- anyway, it's a short story, it's like five thousand words, and it's really wonderfully rendered, and I believe, I guess it's kind of science fiction horror, kind mm-hmm. of, you know. Um, I like Angela Slatter's work, mm-hmm. although sh- only some of it's horror. Most of it, I think, is dark fantasy, and again, there's that what's-the-definition kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I like, um, <clears throat> I love Karen Warren's short stories, and I have I read out one or two of her novels. Caitlin Kiernan, I love her work. Um... <clears throat> There are some British writers I'm, I really like. Oh, Stephen Graham Jones is fabulous. He's American, but he's he's a really fabulous writer of short stories. He's like, he just churns them out. I don't understand how he does it, and they're all good. <laughs> he writes crime also, not just horror. Um, there were some new newish writers in England. Nina Allen writes some excellent novellas. She also writes fantasy and science fiction, but I like her horror. And Carol Johnstone and Alison Littlewood and um, Nick Royal has been writing for a long time in England. He's, um, he, write, he writes – I like his short stories better than his novels. And same Conrad Williams writes really good short stories, horror short mm-hmm. stories. So, yeah, I mean there are so many fabulous horror writers. Gemma Files from Canada. David Nichol, also Nichols from Canada. They write really interesting horror stories and novels. Um. So I can go on forever.
0: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like this. Where, where's the time to read them all? Seriously. Like, and that's just horror. <laughs> well, I the time- read
7: all the stories. That's how I know they exist. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah fair, fair enough, I suppose. But yeah. Well, anyway, we've come to the end of the time, and would actually double what it was supposed to be. But. Uh, this is such a good interview. I'm pretty sure Tony won't mind. Well, anyway, thank Uh-oh. you. Yeah, it's, <laughs> no, no, no. Don't apologize. It's fine. Uh, anyway, thank you so, so much for coming to the show. Really appreciate thank you it. So much. Yeah, we're all uh, pretty big. We've got quite a few listeners who uh, really enjoy the work that we've taken from some of your anthologies on the show. They've really enjoyed them, so they'll be really glad to hear your opinion on the pieces. Fabulous.
7: Let yeah. me know when it'll be
0: up. Yeah. No Go worries. On. Thank you very, very much, Ellen. Thank right.
7: you. No Take worries. Care
3: there you go jeremy thank you so much and ellen datlow thank you so that is starship so is 390 what a cracking story as well by alan Steele. like i said i put a link on if you want to go and say hello to alan jeremy's there as well amy and ellen datlow all links on the page so, don't forget if you want a kind of sponsorship, keep this old girl going. Do you know what I mean? We're kind of struggling on at the moment. There, struggling—not the word. Struggling's quite a, a mild word about it, but you know, ev- everything helps. Until next week, I just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes
6: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed?
0: Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting and storm and those episode. set for
2: open.
6: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well.